Well, hello and welcome back to another ASR Live. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint was really formed around uh, looking at things like restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, a lot of the things that were being done in schools to children, uh, often in the name of behavior that were having really uh, negative outcomes. Uh, you know, kids that were being restrained and secluded were subjected to trauma, uh, were injured and, and kids have even died in the name of restraint and seclusion. Uh, we really started the organization to raise awareness about these issues, uh, but we also are working to change, you know, hearts and minds and laws and policies so that things like restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated in schools across the country and beyond. And, and part of that conversation is thinking about what are the better things we can and should be doing to better support children and all individuals really uh, in our schools and other settings as well. In that uh, vein, I'm really excited about our, our guest today. Uh, excited to have Sarah Jo Solderberry. And, and, and I thought to myself, I should have asked Sarah Joe how to pronounce her name to make sure I was doing it right. She'll be here to tell me in a second if I did it wrong. Uh, hopefully I did okay. But uh, Sarah Joe is going to be joining us for uh, a really special presentation uh, talking about inclusion. And when we think about how do we uh, create better environments for all kids, especially kids that uh, have not been uh, getting the, the support and help they need, uh, inclusion is, is always a, um, a great topic of, of how can we be more inclusive? How can we do better? Uh, you will have an opportunity to ask questions today, um, and we're going to ask you to hold your questions until after uh, the presentation. And uh, feel free to put them in the chat at any time, and we'll go back and we'll look for those questions that might come up. So if you're afraid you're going to lose your question, don't hesitate to put it in the chat, and we'll come back and find it. Uh, the session is being recorded, as always, uh, so you'll be able to watch it later on YouTube. Uh, and we encourage you to share it. Uh, these are great conversations to share with other parents, other educators, other administrators, uh, whoever you might be in, whatever kind of work that you're doing. Uh, they're also available as an audio podcast, so we make those available for people to listen to. So with all that said, let me get to the great part here. And the great part is always uh, introducing our, our guests and talking about what we are going to be talking about today. So uh, I am very excited to um, introduce Sarah Jo. And Sarah Jo, did I do a Hey, on your last name, I'm Yes, sorry. yes, you did great. Okay, okay, perfect. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always worried, and, and and that was the one question I, I didn't confirm with you, even though we've known each other for a long, uh, quite some time. Mm -hmm. You just get used to calling people by their their first name. So, Sergio is a PhD student studying inclusive edu special education at Syracuse University, and uh, uh, you are trained. Um, let's say one to twelve inclusive special educator. Uh, so, you're trained as a uh, one through kit. Uh, 12 inclusive special educator. Your work has centered around uh, students with complex support needs in inclusive settings, uh, inclusive uh, higher education, uh, education policy, uh, decentering whiteness within education, breaking down uh, hierarchies uh, with disability and pre-service inclusion, inclusive educator training. Uh, so you have been um, spending your time uh, as you've been working on your PhD, uh, really not only learning, but immersed in all of this, um, everything from uh, how to make changes in the classroom to what are the policy changes that need to be made to better support things. So we are really excited to have you. And the one thing I didn't mention in your bio, and this is probably one of the most important things, you are a volunteer with the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint as well. Yes. So that's a great, uh, a great um, way to introduce you. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're, we're really excited and excited about this topic as well. And I just want to mm -hmm. let people that are watching know, uh, if you would, you know, it's always fun to see 
who's watching and where you're from. Uh, we know we get a lot of people from all over the world that are watching these events. Uh, we have people typically from uh, Australia and Canada and uh, New Zealand and the UK and, and, and all over the world. We've had people from, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, India and uh, South America. It's always fun to see who's on. So tell us who you are, where you're from, uh, whether it's a you know, different state here in the US or uh, a different country, we'd love to know where you're from. Uh, and Sergio, what we're going to do is bring up your screen, uh, and I know you've got a presentation for us, and we will, of course, be taking questions uh, after your presentation, uh, but this is really exciting. So let me go ahead and bring up your presentation, and we're going to bring that up right now, and your presentation is on screen. We're getting a couple of hellos here, uh, and uh, let's see, we've got somebody from Edmonton, Canada joining us. Uh, we've got somebody from uh, North Carolina as well, Donna. Uh, hello, Donna. Uh, it's always good to see familiar names. And yes, uh, it is being recorded. Uh, somebody from Illinois as well. So we've got a number of people joining us and uh, really excited to have you talk about this topic because I know from talking to you how passionate you are about this. Um, and, and I also know, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting um, is, you know, there, there are parents out there that... Um, you know, when they think about inclusive education, they think, well, that's a great idea, but probably wouldn't work for, for my child. And, and I know that you're uh, somebody that has advocated and work with children really with very diverse needs. Uh, we have somebody joining us for the first time. Tanya, great to have you here. Uh, I have somebody from Connecticut um, uh, and very excited about the presentation. Uh, uh, Tanya, of course, is from Anaheim, California. Uh, Olivia, who is a, a former presenter and, and uh, also uh, somebody we're really excited to work with here mm -hmm. with us. Uh, and somebody from Syracuse, New York. That sounds like somebody that you might even right. know in that neighborhood, I was right? right? Right by me. Yeah. That's right. That's great. That's great. Uh, so let me go ahead and give you the reins. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to disappear while you present. Uh, I won't be far. I'll be just kind of off stage here, so to speak. Uh, so take it away. And uh, thank you so much for doing this for us today. Great, thank you. And thank you so much again for having me. Um, I would also add, I'm a really proud product of an inclusive education. My best friend growing up has Down syndrome um, and was fully included with us, which initially sparked my passion for inclusive ed. Um, so I see I see some familiar faces. So uh, some of you, this may not be new information for some of you, it may be. Um, so let's start with what is inclusive education? I wanna start with this idea that we will know inclusive education has become um, has really become embedded in our culture when the term becomes obsolete. Meaning our goal is that we move towards not even needing the term inclusive education, that it is just embedded through what we do. And I'm going to get in a little bit later about why we have these, these different terms um, for it as a note on language and um, how, it, how it connects to our laws as well. So the first thing that we're gonna talk about is what is inclusive education? So inclusive education is a philosophical framework that views all learners as capable thinkers, authentic members and value contributors who can be educated within general education settings in their neighborhood school with differentiated and teaching and learning strategies that match their strengths, learning styles, challenges, interests, and needs. And there are a lot of definitions for inclusive education. Why I utilize this one is because it specifically says in general education classrooms. And for me, that is the big piece of inclusive education. Um, we see sometimes this term of inclusion being co-opted to mean, oh, well, it's, you know, inclusion if we just have lunch and recess. And no, it is um, in general education classrooms at all points of the day. So I have this, this flow chart on the right, and some of you may have seen this before, but it's 
pretty much my favorite thing to show when I do trainings for schools is the first thing I start with. So who can be included? Go down. The first question is, do you have a disability? And if the answer is no, then yes, of course you can be included. If the answer is yes, you do have a disability, we get to the all important question of, are you breathing? If the answer is no, then there's not a good chance that you can be included. If the answer is yes, you are breathing, breathing, then yes, you can be included. Meaning the only barrier, the only hoop to jump through, the only metric is, are you breathing? Are you a person who is alive? If yes, then you can be included. Inclusive education also means that students with the most significant cognitive disabilities to have access to the same instructional and non-instructional experiences alongside peers within general education classrooms with appropriate instructional adjustments to meet their needs. I bring this up because we sometimes hear, oh, inclusion for certain types of kids or for this or for that. And when we say inclusion, we do in fact mean inclusion for all students, even those who have been labeled as having the most complex support needs. Central to inclusive education is this idea of presuming competence. And to presume competence means you should assume that a person with a disability has the capacity to think, to learn, to understand, even if you can't see any tangible evidence to prove this. You might think, oh, this, of course, of course we do that. But it's actually a controversial topic in the field of education. There are scholars who argue that, no, it is only when we have, we have discernible proof that a student can learn that we hold them to those standards of learning. But we would say, no, the least dangerous assumption is to presume competence. Meaning, is it more dangerous to assume a student can learn? So we give them every opportunity to do so. And it turns out that they couldn't. Or is it more dangerous to assume that the student could not learn so we don't give them any opportunity and it turns out that they could? We would say that it is less dangerous to assume that the student can learn, even when we have no tangible proof, give them those opportunities to do so. And I will say from my experience and many other people experience this is I'm coming to you with, you know, standing on the shoulders of 40 plus years of work um, by scholars and in inclusive education that if we give students the opportunity, they can in fact learn. Inclusive education must also be intersectional. So intersection of disability, race, class, gender, language, which is, has been conceptualized by black feminist scholars, is critical to understanding and must be intentionally centered in this work. We know, right, when we look at the numbers of students who are, who are more likely to be put into segregated spaces, who are more likely to be restrained and secluded, it is students of color, students who are disabled and students of color. Um, we cannot look at this as a single issue um, problem. It is a multidimensional problem, and we must look at it through an intersectional lens to honor the differing identities of all of our students and, and teachers and related service providers and administrators and parents. I also want to talk about why I use the term inclusion versus mainstreaming, and you'll hear those interchangeably in the dialogue around inclusive education. Um, and a lot of folks would argue that we need to move on beyond inclusive education. But for the purpose of today, um, I do not like the term mainstreaming because mainstreaming has this connotation that we're putting students 
into general education spaces at times that we have deemed appropriate. Whereas inclusion looks at providing the supports and services needed to the student in that space from the very start. So you, I often hear schools when I'm when I advocated IEP meetings say, "Oh, well, we do mainstreaming of the you know lunch, recess, art at those times that we have deemed appropriate." Whereas inclusion is purposely planning from the start to support those students in those spaces. So what is the problem? Within a U.S. context, we have two systems of education. We have our general education, and then we have special education, and they are siloed from one another. I would argue that it is only if we intermesh those and do not have separate systems of education that are siloed that we can ever truly achieve equitable education. Because what has happened, and as many of you have seen through your own experiences, whether with your students, your children, um, through your professional life, is that these two things do not, they do not, these two systems of education do not talk. If you are a student who receives special education services, that automatically means you must go over there to that special space. Whereas general education is the default then, right, for folks who are not disabled. And this is a problem because the special education system is what allows for legal segregation of students with disabilities in our country. Dr. Cheryl Jorgensen has some really great work on this if you're interested further. So you might be thinking, well, okay, why are we, why are we talking about inclusive education? It sounds like a really you know, fluffy, nice idea, but what does, what does it matter in terms of learning? So 40 years of peer-reviewed research would tell us that inclusive education is the best way, the most equitable way, the way that we are, students are going to learn the most. So let's dive into what some, some, a very small sliver of what the research says. So why? Why do we push inclusive education beyond, um, beyond the social aspect? Well, students with disabilities in inclusive settings have shown improvement in standardized tests, acquisition of social and communication skills that were previously underdeveloped. They've shown increased interactions with peers, achieved more and higher quality IEP goals, and are better prepared for post-school experiences. The positive effects of inclusive education on classmates without disabilities has also been well documented. Both research and anecdotal data have shown that typical learners have demonstrated a greater acceptance and valuing of individual differences, enhanced self-esteem, a genuine capacity for friendship, and the acquisition of new school skills in inclusive settings. So it's more of the, the research say, and I leave this up um, because I know we have some parents watching who may want to take tidbits for their IEP meetings that are coming up. I know we're in kind of annual review season for next year. Um, the students with complex support needs make academic, social, and behavioral gains when they are educated in general education classes. Students with complex support needs who are educated in inclusive general education classes generally receive more instructional time and more individualized attention than those who spend their days in segregated classrooms. Now that's an important piece because sometimes we often hear, oh, if your student goes over here to our special, you know, special class, special day program, you know, special autism support classroom, that's where they're going to be able to receive the services that they need, the individualized attention, it's the environment that they need. And what research actually says is they're actually getting less instructional time than if they were in a general education classroom. And it's less likely to be individualized to their needs. So 
benefits of students with the most significant cognitive disabilities, being in general education classes um, extend beyond learning, but include better social and long-term outcomes, such as better employability in competitive wage jobs and independent living. I'm seeing a lot of folks who are on the stream are from, um, you know, a community I, I hold very, very near and dear to my heart um, in the Down syndrome world, and that, you know, we know that it is a, a an extremely small number of folks with intellectual disabilities who are competitively employed. Well, why is that? Not only because of the infrastructure by which in the system by which we exist that that has not prioritized allowing individuals, disabled individuals to save money, but also because we have students who are sitting in, in segregated spaces who are not gaining the skills that they need to, to have access to these competitive wage jobs. What the research tells us is that when students are in inclusive settings, even students who are labeled as having the most significant intellectual or cognitive disabilities, they are more likely to have competitive wage jobs and independent living than they would be in segregated specialized programming. Students with complex support needs make more progress in inclusive contexts than in segregated contexts. We see going back to the 90s, significant increases in spelling, social studies, and other academic indicators were observed. Now, looking at the National Longitudinal Study, examining 11,000 students with a range of disability types, found that more time spent in general education classrooms was positively correlated with fewer absences from school, fewer referrals for disruptive behavior, and a better outcome after high school in the areas of employment and independent living. Again, stressing that we have the data, we have the research to say when students are in general education classes, they have better skill acquisition, social acquisition, language acquisition, and long-term, these are the students who are most, most likely to have better outcomes after high school. Now, when we tell you might hear the phrase all means all, it's something I, I, I believe enough that I actually have a tattooed on my body that when we talk about inclusive education, I we are talking that it benefits all students. Something I hear from IEP teams is, well, what about the impact on the typically developing students? Well, let's talk about it. What does the research tell us? Engagement time for typical learners is not negatively impacted by the presence of students with quote unquote severe disabilities. Presence of students with disabilities results in a greater number of typical, typical students making reading and academic progress compared to non-inclusive general education classes in the area of academic progress. What does that mean? It means inclusive education when we have students with disabilities in general education spaces. Education gets better for all students. We have better acquisition of those core academic concepts for, for students who are labeled as having a disability students who are not labeled as having a disability because it forces us to have dynamic adaptive instruction that then meets better meets the needs of all students now what about behavior um i'm going to start with this idea that uh, behavior that compliance is not our goal in inclusive education I, gotta, I, I love this tweet from Tim, Tim Vegas. It says, how many chances should you give a, a student who has challenging behavior? And the answer is all of the chances. 
Dr. Ross Green says the long-term answer to a kid not caring about your concern is to care more about his. Now, behavior is a complex topic, and I know there's been many lives and um, great resources here that you can refer back to. But I want to say, in re re related to inclusive education, that when we're looking at inclusive education as a systems change issue, we're also looking at the capacity to support students who may have some more behavioral needs. But that must be done in a vein that we're not trying to simply control students' behavior. We're trying to help students gain the skills to communicate, the skills to um, self-regulate, to do the things that they need to do. And we know that the research shows, um, the data shows that students are more likely to be restrained and secluded if they're labeled as having a disability and particularly if they are in those segregated spaces. So coming back together, right? It's not a single issue thing. We have to be building the capacity and through, through training, through um, you know, dismantling of these segregated programs to support all students, including those with behavior challenges. So traditional or segregated special education actually builds that gap, that gap that we often hear school districts say, well, if we close it, right, then they can go in here. So let's talk about it. Segregated or traditional special education utilizes the prerequisite model of learning that posits that students with complex support needs must progress through early developmental milestones before they are able to learn grain-aligned academic content. Um, I'm sure many of you who are parents or practitioners have heard of, oh, this is a foundational skill, they must have this. And I always question that, especially when I'm in IEP meetings. We'll have you know, students who are working on one-to-one -one math correspondence to 12th grade and have never been introduced to adding or subtracting because they have not been able to master this skill. In what we do with inclusive education is we look at what are what is the standards that apply to all students? And how can I, having identified what the student needs to work on, work on that skill through what we are doing in general education, which provides more opportunity, more, more complex opportunities for our students to dynamically engage with content, thereby having a better chance of, of mastering said content. Just why when we hear, oh, well, we can't do this, we can't go into general education before we learn this, our answer is no, we have to be able to learn. If we deem that this skill is so essential and so fundamental, there are ways to embed that through the core curriculum. So it's not a stepping stone acquisition, it is more of a dynamic natural acquisition. I would also question, I also question the, the actual need of these, some of these quote unquote fundamental skills. I have another uh, presentation that I do that talks about life skills. And without getting too much into that, I want you to think about things like time and money management that are often seen as these foundational skills in segregated special education programs. And think about the last time you've gone to the store, you went to go pay for something. What did you grab? You probably grabbed your credit card, your debit card, your phone, your Apple Watch, but you did not grab a, a, a bag full of pennies, nickels, and dimes. It's simply a skill that is not used anymore. So what we do when we move away from this prerequisite model of learning 
is give ourselves permission to say it's okay to introduce a concept and move on from it or position it within learning more advanced concepts. And I know that's a large, a large thing we could spend a whole other live on. Traditional special education also posits things like work readiness. Um, this was a, something I saw, um, this I actually saw a few years ago on Instagram and I, I copied out the, the names, but it says um, somebody commented, so you see um, on the screen are a bunch of, they look like fa face cleanser wipe things you would get. Um, and someone said, this would be perfect for a life skills class to practice stocking with. And so instead of learning, reading, writing, or math, we have students as young as three years old in, this, in the United States who are practicing quote unquote job readiness skills with the irony, irony being that those job readiness skills aren't actually positioning them to become job ready. Traditional special education is grounded in the assumption of identifiable and meaningful difference. It is a field with deep roots in behaviorism, positivism, psychology, and medicine. The purpose of education has become remediation of identified deficits with the goal of moving the person towards a more normative way of being. So traditional special education looks at disability as something to be fixed. Whereas inclusive education, we give every student the supports that they need to be successful. You'll see a little on uh, the bottom, a little meme I made and has um, been shared that life skill classes are the new institutions, change my mind. Um, these idea of life skill classes or adaptive classes are, are rooted in institutionalization as, as a product of when we stopped institutionalizing folks to the scale that we did also, but with a reminder that there are still a million people in the United States who are in institutions currently. That the system we have in education is born out of perhaps some of the most egregious treatment of disabled people we have in the United States, directly from institutions. Inclusive or traditional special education is also deeply rooted in ableism. From an ableist perspective, the devaluing of disability results in social attitudes that uncritically assert that it is better for a child to walk than to roll, to speak than to sign, read print than read braille, spell independently than use a spell check, and hang out with non-disabled kids as opposed to other disabled kids. In fact, in the eyes of many educators in society, it is preferable for disabled students to do things in the same manner as non-disabled kids. And so what I want to be I want to be really clear on is that inclusive education is not fixing disabled students. It is not moving disabled students to a normative center of being. It is honoring what that disabled student has and giving them the supports to be in general education, to make whatever progress they're going to make in whatever way they are going to. But it is not, as we see in things in places who utilize things like VB Map. ABA. It is not to move students to be indistinguishable from their non-disabled peers. That is not our goal with inclusive education. So I have a little, little chart. On the left, you'll see traditional uh, segregated special education with the goal, whether it is implicit or not, whether it is, it is outwardly said or something that is just embedded, is to assimilate disabled students through forced compliance to a non-disabled way of being. 
with rooted in racist and ableist practices with direct links to institutionalization. Whereas inclusive education, we're meeting students where they're at, bringing the supports to them while making systems changes. It's grounded in culturally sustaining pedagogy, which according to Paris and Aleem, demand explicitly pluralistic outcomes that are not centered on white middle-class monolingual and monocultural ways, not norms of educational achievement. It's also rooted in disability justice. And I have a quote here from um, Chris Cleaver. This is to value another is to recognize diversity as the norm. It's essential that equal rights of all school children, a sense that we all benefit from one another and the fundamental rights of every student to belong. That is what we get, want to get to with inclusive education. It's not simply about disabled students being present. It is about creating a system that recognizes diversity as the norm, as opposed to forcibly assimilating students to that norm. Now, without getting, without completely sidetracking us, um, I want you to share from Sins of Invalid the uh, 10 principles of disability justice that are central to inclusive education. Intersectionality, leadership of those most impacted, anti-capitalist politics, commitment to cross-movement organizing, recognizing wholeness, sustainability, commitment to cross-disability solidarity, interdependence, collective access, and collective liberation. Again, inclusive education is will not ever be achieved if we only look at it as a disability issue, specifically from a white disability lens. We must be intersectional in this, or we will be continuing to leave folks out. So from a worldview, um, the Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disability, the CRPD states, persons with disabilities are not excluded from the general education system on the basis of disability, and that children with disabilities are not excluded from free and compulsory primary education or from secondary education on the basis of disability. It also says effective individualized supports measures are provided in environments that maximize academic and social development consistent with the goal of full inclusion. Now, I'm sure it is not shocking that the United States has not signed on nor ratified the CRPD. Um, those, of you who, those of you who are in the U.S., I'm sure can say this is not something that in the U.S. we could say that we do. We consistently exclude students from general education on the basis of disability. In fact, our primary law explicitly allows that. So speaking of that primary law, let's get into the Individuals with Disability Education Act or IDEA, which is the federal law that guarantees the rights of disabled students to have access to public education in the United States. So the purpose of special education, where did it go? Oh. So according to IDA, the purpose of special education is to ensure access of all children to the general curriculum so that the children meet educational standards within the jurisdiction of the public agency that apply to all children. Now, I want you to think back to what we were talking about, about life skills. Now, we, would, we could all say that, yes, every student needs life skills. Every student needs to be able to go to the grocery store, to buy things, to budget, et cetera. And we have, would have no problem with every student doing that. The problem being, if we only take disabled students and force them to do it in a way that we don't for students who are not labeled as having a disability, 
Further, we would argue that those things do not meet the standard that IDA sets in access to the general curriculum to meet the standards that apply to all students. Unless we are having all students do this, we should not be having disabled students do it. So Individuals with Disability Education Act gives us, um, there are six like, main rights that we talk about through, through IDEA. First one is a free and appropriate public education or FAPE. Least restrictive environment. These are the two I'm going to dive a little further into. Appropriate evaluation, parental participation, individualized education plan or IEP, and due process. So FAPE or free appropriate public education is an individualized education program that is designed to meet the child's unique needs and from which the child receives educational benefit as it is outlined in their IEP and prepares them for further education, employment, and independent living. Now, FAPE applies to students ages 3 to 21. Some states have elected to go above 21, um, but at a minimum must apply to 21. Now, where we get murky in this, because with all of these laws, the problem is the murkiness, this gray area that we allow to exist. So for a long time, we had a standard for what does it mean to be appropriate? My idea of appropriate versus yours versus another person's is going to be different, um, which is where we get into a lot of these battles. Now, the Andrew decision, which was the most recent Supreme Court case to, to weigh in on this, is to... Um, FAPE needs to be more than de minimis. So to meet its substantive obligation under IDEA, a school district must offer an IEP reasonably, reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. Now, this is significant, a significant improvement from the previous standard where students simply had to be receiving some educational benefit under the Rowley um, precedent. But I want specifically those of us to, uh, who work with folks who may have more complex support needs or are labeled as having complex support needs, because I do think we should problematize what is complex um, about, about a lot of these supports, that when we think about in light of the child's circumstances, if we have folks who are not presuming competence, are not presuming that students can learn and can learn academic content in general education. This could be used, right? And has been used to segregate, further segregate students. We may have folks who are arguing that, oh, well, in light of their circumstances by having, you know, an XIQ, that means the best we could possibly do is teach them how to wipe tables. But we would go back to our educational research that says actually these students learn more when we're in these academic general education spaces. So. FAPE is still, there's still no one, one standard. It is um, in light of the individual child, is that individualized? But coming back to what we know about what is fundamental to inclusive education is that presumption of competence. So least restrictive environment, perhaps the thing I talk about the most in my work. Um, so what does LRE say? A school district must educate any student with a disability in the regular classroom with use of appropriate aids and supports referred to as supplementary aids and services, along with the student's peers without disabilities in the school he or she would attend if the student did not have a disability to the maximum extent possible. Now, there's a few things I want to hone in on. 
in the regular classroom with the use of supplementary aids and supports and this piece of along the students' peers without disabilities. Because what you'll often hear is, oh, well, that is the child's least restrictive environment is over there in the, in the life skills class with only disabled students. But what does IDA say is LRE is actually with your non-disabled peers. Let's keep reading into what LRE says. LRE continues to say to the maximum extent appropriate children with disabilities are educated with children who are not disabled in special classes, separate schooling, or other removal from the regular educational environment occurs only when the nature or severity of the disability is such that education in regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. I, I, I bolded here with the use of supplementary aids and services. And it's not simply enough for a school district to look at, a, at paperwork of testing and say, oh, I think this student is so, so impacted they cannot make progress. We actually have to try it with the supplementary aids and services. Meaning, just because you have a student in general education, if they're not making progress, our duty is then to look at what are those additional supplementary aids and services that we can be bringing. Because we know once we have those supports in place, the students can make progress. But what the law says is, if the student can make progress with those supplementary aids and services, then that is where the student needs to be is general education. Um, IDEA uses the term regular education environment, but I'll use them interchangeably. Now, this means that for many students, they're going to need modified curriculum. And I hear, I, I've heard in my, in my past work and my current work, that, oh, well, we cannot modify this any further whether that is a 12th grade math class or whether that is a second grade English or math class, I hear this. And what do the regulations say is that a child with a disability is not removed from education in age appropriate regular classrooms solely because of the needed modification in the general education curriculum. Meaning if it can be modified to meet the student's needs, then it has to be that that alone is not a reason to remove the student. Further, it is not a reason to hear, oh, well, I think it's too watered down. Because then we're, we're holding the disabled student actually to a higher standard than what we, what we expect students who are not disabled. Because students who are not disabled also may not get 100% of the curriculum, and that is not forcing them into segregated spaces. So the, the regulations specifically say this. Um, and this is something for, for parents who are watching something that I would, I would screech out and hold to bring to your IEP meeting that just because we need extensive modifications, that is not enough to say the student cannot be in general education. So where does LRE apply? Um, so something I didn't, I didn't actually used to include until pretty recently until an, a, an experience advocating for students to be on a, a standard bus. Um, but it applies to the classroom, so general education, students should be in general education, to after-school clubs if they are school-sponsored, and to buses. Buses, transportation, whatever that mode is for your school district. So that is what the law says. And I'm sure many of us who are in here know that just because the law says it doesn't always mean that it happens. So let's look at a few cases that are beneficial um, to advocating for inclusive education. So Ilberti versus the Board of Ed from 1993 is possibly one of my favorite decisions. Um, 
And it stipulates that a child should not have to earn his way into an integrated school setting by first functioning successfully in a segregated setting. Inclusion is a right, not a privilege for a select few. Success in special schools and special classes does not lead to successful functioning in an integrated society, which is clearly one of the goals of IDEA. This is directly from the court decision. And what is so great about this decision is it looks at all the supplementary aids and services that were not used to support the student in the classroom as the basis for why the student should be included. So again, we cannot remove if we can make progress with those supplementary aids and services, and we have to exhaust those before we can look at removing. This also, let me go back first again. This also talks about not having to earn your way in, right? So how many of you have heard, oh, well, when they close that gap or when they, you know, exhibit X, Y, and Z, then they can go into there. Well, the Alberti case tells us we do not have to earn our way in. The portability principle, perhaps, okay, my second favorite, Rona Kirby Walter, just um, the court decision says, it is not enough for a district to simply claim that a segregated program is superior. In a case where the segregated facility is considered superior, the court should determine whether the services which make the placement superior can feasibly be provided in a non-segregated setting, i.e. regular education or general education. If they can, then placement in the segregated school or classroom would be under would be inappropriate under the Act IDEA. So if there is something so special that is happening in that segregated space, our first piece is to look at what is it about that space that can that is that is deemed necessary for that student to make progress. And then we look at how do we bring that in? I often hear things like, oh, well, smaller teacher ratio, or we're going to be able to get individualized instruction, or just this, this fallacy that there's something special that happens in these four walls in a segregated program that can't be emulated. And the research would tell us that that is actually not true, that actually we're going to get more individualized instruction over here. But more importantly, Roniker v. Walter with the portability principle gives us the base to say, well, actually, if, if you have that program over there, then you need to bring it into general education. If you have that support over there, then you need to bring it into general education. And unless it cannot be brought in, unless it is so you know chained to that specific location, which I quite frankly can't think of anything that is, um, needs to be brought into the general education setting. Another good piece for those of you going into your annual IEP meetings to have. So I think, oh, I'm just about perfect on time, I think. Um, I want to end again with um, a quote from the Alberti case, that inclusion is a right, not a privilege for a select few. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop sharing my screen now and get to questions. Thank you so much, uh, Sergio. This has been fantastic. And uh, I think we've got a number of uh, comments and questions here. Uh, I'm going to start the ball rolling, though, if you don't mind, and, and ask a couple myself, and then we'll get a couple from the uh, audience. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting, and uh, I would love to hear more from you on, is, <laughs> I think how to put this the best way I can, uh, many times, um, not only in my own experiences, but the experiences of many of the parents uh, and families that we've worked with, uh, we find um, 
the idea of inclusion um, being thrown about as, oh, well, you know, they're an inclusive uh, PE and lunch and art. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always the same things. And in fact, what, what always strikes me about it, uh, because I would say that, uh, you know, if anything, it's, it's probably lazy inclusion, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. like, a, uh, you know, what, what can we do to say we're being inclusive? Uh, what can we do to, to say that we're offering, um, you know, experiences with their peers? And, you know, I would say that many of the kids that, um, you know, I have known and, and uh, the experiences that I've had, those environments are actually among the most difficult mm-hmm. for a kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you are autistic, uh, you know, being in that general education setting for PE for lunch, but mm-hmm. it seems to be almost universal. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember at one point really uh, pushing the school district against that and saying, no, these aren't the inclusion opportunities. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because it seems to be uh, the way it is in many places, not the individualized approach. So I'd love to hear more of your perspective on that. Yeah, no, I think what you said about lazy inclusion is is a really great way to say it. Because um, it is, it's, it's often the subjects that, first of all, we deem, and I say we broadly deem as like the least important that somehow become these like inclusion classes. Yeah. And we give then teachers the least amount of training to facilitate that. Um, while also then creating a system where there's social stigma, because who are these students who are now just like guests in our in our classroom, essentially, um, while not thinking about, like you said, the intentional planning that would need to go behind and should go behind having students in those those special area classes. But to simply throw a student in um, and, and call it inclusion, I think in any realm, but in specifically those, those special areas, um, and I say special meaning like those extra, those non, non-core right, academic, right, right. Um, in a way, lots of districts use it as like to reinforce their narrative of like, oh, see, it didn't work. Look, the gym class of 60 kindergartners didn't seem right. to work for that student. Right, right. Um, in like, in well, a highly sensory overwhelming, well, you know, studying, right? Right. right. And, yeah. and I, I think, you know, if we're going to have a student not participate in something, like let's look at how can we, you know, I'd rather than be in a math class than in gym, quite frankly. Right, right, um, right. Because I'll tell you, like, maybe I'm throwing myself under the bus, like, I didn't really participate in gym either. Like, I was, you know, one of the girls on the side chit chatting. Um, so we hold, again, we hold disabled students to a higher standard in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it almost seems like you, you, you got to, I mean, it's a matter of having low expectations, right? Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, well, this is the only inclusion that this child might be ready to handle. Right. Um, because like you said, there's not, there's not the expectation. Uh, and, and that's part of that approach as well. Um, I have a question for you in terms of um, in your experience, and this is always a hard mm-hmm. question because often the answer is no, mm-hmm. but in cases, and, and, and let me get to the question, which is, is there anywhere that is really doing it right? So, I mean, if you look across the world, are there places that are really doing well here? Yeah, yeah, there there are. Um, you know, I, I'll i start with that I don't believe, we'll, and I said this in there, but I don't believe, again, that we'll ever have equity until we dismantle the special education system. I don't believe we can reform IDA enough to become equitable. And so I look at places like Italy and I look at places like Finland, which have completely mm-hmm. um, do receiving supports in ways that are fundamentally different, that students 
Um, I, I'm thinking about scholar Dr. Julia White, who's at Syracuse, who, who often talks about Finland and that at any point, up to about 30% of kids are receiving extra supports. Now, and they don't have to go through these hoops to get supports. And that might be for one reason or the other, disability or not. Um, so yeah, there are places that are doing it right. This idea of an inclusive of inclusive education for all students is not a utopia. There are places that are doing it. There are districts in, in the United States that are, do, that are doing it. There are mm -hmm. countries that are nearly universally doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yes, now my hesitation always in the US context to say, oh, this district or that district um, is doing it well is, is we know that the with, reg with regime change, and I mean regime change and special education director or teacher or what have you, um, those can flip when we see folks leave, you know, fully inclusive districts ha have reverted back. Um, or we have districts then where people flock to, and there's nothing wrong with, obviously there's nothing wrong with moving to to support your student with what they need, but then it, it becomes, you know, you know challenging. Um, if we now have a, a school district with 50% students with, with disabilities to, to make that inclusion happen. So, yes, it is happening. I mean, I, I, I go back to, again, my own experience with inclusive education. Um, so, yeah, I guess short answer is yes, it is happening. It is not a utopia. It is happening in countries and it is happening in districts across this country. Mm -hmm. I, I love that you um, brought up uh, kind of the the thinking of the social model versus the medical model of, of disability. And, and it seems to me that when we're having this conversation about inclusion, uh, it really is about kind of that whole mind shift uh, into the social model uh, versus the, the, the medical model. Uh, I wonder if you might explain to people that might not be as, as um, you know, kind of um, familiar with those terms, kind of what we mean when we, we talk about the social model uh, versus like a medical model and, and how you think that uh, inclusion really does fit that social model. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with the medical model um, is where we could sort of pathologize disability. We look at it from this, like we need to professionals, right, diagnose. And the problem is within the person. The problem is whether it's, you know, you can't walk or you're not doing this. And it is all up against a normative, non-disabled notion. So you are deviating from the norm because you're hearing and we have to fix that, right? We have to fix these things, um, whether that is behavior, whether that is um, something physical, et cetera. Whereas a social model locates the problem within structures in society, um, that if we had, let's say, folks who were signing and everybody was signing, well, would would that disability, would that, that deafness rise to, you know, a level of disability, right? Um, so it's, it's it's about fixing the systems around us. And I often talk about when I'm when I'm working with teachers or when I am advocating in IEP meetings, looking at things like what are those adult behaviors? So within a school context when we look at a medical model would be, we need to fix that kid. We need to fix something about them, their behavior, their academics, et cetera. Whereas a social model is what do we as the adults, what are those adult behaviors that we are going to do to give access to that student? So it's not a fixing. We are looking at from a social model. We're looking at everyone as just who they are, not better, not worse, just who right. they are, disability or not. And how do we remove the barriers, right? It's it's yeah. not about fixing the individual. It's about how do we remove the barriers of success? Um, okay, so I want to get to some comments and questions here from 
our audience. And this is a good point for me to pause and let you know if you are watching, if you have a question or you have a comment, uh, mm -hmm. please put that in the chat. But I, I have seen a couple of things that have popped up that I wanted to address. Uh, mm -hmm. I've got something that's a bit of a, a multi uh, part one here, but I, I'm mm -hmm. going to kind of steer through this uh, and start with a little bit of kind of a statement background. And Ruth Ann, uh, Ruth Ann, thanks for joining us, is an autistic young adult. And mm -hmm. we're always very uh, excited to have autistic self advocates here uh really um that are passionate and advocating for changes i think you know one of the places i'm sure that we would agree is the need to uh have the voice of lived experiences okay. um so uh, yeah i want to begin by just kind of welcoming ruth ann who has a couple uh questions here uh and, and mentions that she's actually going to be speaking at a board meeting in june about mm -hmm. her experiences and and that's so so critical she was uh asking about ruth ann was asking about a particular program and I know all different schools have all different kinds of programs. Uh, so you may not be familiar about this program, but typically what we're talking about here, uh, this is a immersion program uh, in a central New York school uh, called, um, let's see, what was it called? I, I think I lost it, visual immersion program. Um, but often when we're talking about special programs, we are talking about segregated settings. Um, and, you know, there, and I think there was another part of it here. And, and, you know, Ruth Ann says, I don't know much about the program, but feel like it might be segregating autistic students from their peers. Uh, not really yeah. sure. And, and certainly there's a lot of programs with a lot of names, depending on where you live. You know, uh, we have programs here in my area. There's one mm -hmm. that was called the IL program, the SLE program. We, of course, have all sorts of behavioral um, programs mm -hmm. as well in various states. Um, and this is really what we're talking about. So what are your general thoughts when you hear about kind of these specialized yeah. programs. So my understanding of, of that specific program is that it's what is similar to like a VB map um, program that it's that it's designed for autistic students um, and also marketed towards students with who are labeled as having a co cognitive or intellectual disability. Um, and I have particular tend to and I haven't I'll say I haven't looked in specifically to this program. Um, as much as I have like VV map and some of those others, but I, I you know, think they, they are, you're saying you're correct that they are used almost exclusively in segregated settings is the first piece. The second piece is that they are, the goal of those programs are to move students. They would say the goal is skill acquisition. I'm going to tell you that the hidden curriculum piece of that is to move students to a normative way of being, to get students, you know, either to speak, to, to act in a certain way. We're going to see a lot of hand over hand. We're going to see a lot of like um, those the prerequisite model where you have to do this, then this, then this. All the while, general education is surpassing us by. Um, so I would be really hesitant. It's not something that I would um, would 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 advocate for. Um, right. There's some really great work. I know Robin, you know, Signal has, has written on the autism industrial complex and things. Um, but I, I don't want us to remove the fact that we live in capitalism. And so many of these, these products are marketed for folks to make money, not for folks to gain those skills. Um, so I'm really hesitant, uh, really against most, most programs, especially when they have that underlying premise of moving students towards a more non-disabled or normative way of right, being. right. O often, kind of very compliance-based programs that are mm -hmm. that are really um, taking that medical model of, of what's the deficit and, and how do we? Yeah, no, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you, and I think that um, there, there's a lot of well-intentioned uh, programs. 
But again, you know, our, our, you, you need to look at the goals. What's the goal of the program? What's the goal of, of mm -hmm. what you're doing in, in a therapy setting? What are the goals? And if, if your goal is to, um, you know, take a neurodivergent individual and, and push them into a mm -hmm. uh, neurotypical mold, uh, your goal is the wrong goal. Um, you know, absolutely. I think we, we absolutely need to be doing more uh, to even celebrate the differences of neurodiversity. And, mm -hmm. and you know, there, there's so much there to offer, but, you know, so many of the approaches are about, it's a deficit. How do we, you know, work on these things? And, and you know, but they're sold to families. They're sold to parents. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and to school districts, quite right, frankly. I mean, right, they're, right. They're, they're sold, right, as 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 these things that are going to, you know, be the exact thing that, that you need. And the irony is that those aren't the, the they're not even the, the irony is that they're not even the skills that are the students are going to need right. in the future. Right. Um, that to me is the most, well, among the many oh. infuriating pieces, yeah. I guess, yeah. is of the most, but it is right. something that I'm like, oh, come on, it's not even, they're not even good skills. You're segregating because, you know, it, it just. And we don't all need all the same skills. The world, the world thrives on, on, mm -hmm you know, the diversity among us. And, uh, you know, I think we often have a very linear view of, of that. Uh, let me get to a couple other uh, questions here. Uh, Laura said, uh, what about the I, what about when the IP team tells you that the gen ed environment is too stimulating for mm -hmm. your child um, who can keep up academically, but is struggling behaviorally? Um, the first thing I would say, and maybe it's a little snarky is, is, well, how are we going to help improve your classroom management then? Um, the second, the second piece is the world is overstimulating. Um, as a neurodivergent scholar myself, like sometimes just sitting in the grad bay is overstimulating, but that doesn't mean I don't have to do it. That doesn't mean I don't need access to those spaces. So what can we do to both honor that the student has these support needs whether that is changing the environment of the general education classroom, whether that is giving breaks outside of it, whether that is improving your classroom management, but arguably what that student needs the most, the skills is to self-advocate, is to recognize when they're becoming overstimulated and to gain the skills to help them self-regulate. Now, we're not going to be able to put them in an artificial environment where it's the perfect working conditions after K-12. Unless your goal is to put them into a day hab or an institution, we're going to have to gain those skills. Um, and that may mean in, that may mean there are times where the student is out taking a walk, is out taking a break, is in the sensory room. Um, it's, you know, inclusion doesn't look the same for every student. Um, so when I, I'll often get school districts that say, you know, just give me the plan that we're going to do inclusion. Well, I don't know the students. I don't know the needs. For some students, that may mean, you know, standing up and, and stimming in the back of the classroom. And that's okay. Um, a lot of school districts who will, who will often say, well, they can't be in there because it's too simulating at the same time for students to not stim. So how do we, right, 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 how, right. how do we right, do this is right. we first say that it's okay to, to, for students to regulate their bodies in the way they need to. Right. Um, and then we figure out ways to do that in the general education classroom. Okay. And that's, sorry. Yeah. So, so, so let me jump on that a little bit. And I, I have a yeah. comment here that I'm going to turn into a question that relates to kind of what you're saying. Uh, and the comment here comes from Colleen, who is very thankful for what we're doing, but talking about prepping for an IEP meeting tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, and kind of loving what, what we're talking about here. So with that in mind and, and kind of what we were just talking about, um, Let's let's talk for a minute to um, 
Sarah Joe, the advocate that is sitting in the IEP meeting mm-hmm. where the school is resistant to uh, inclusion, what are the kinds of things? So, so how in that process, because it's, it's not all, it's not going to be the first time you come in there and talk to them, mm-hmm. a light bulb goes off and they get it. How do you begin to shape the IEP or to offer supports and accommodations, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it may be, goals? to begin moving the team in the right direction, begin getting the team moving in that direction. Because, you know, again, the IP, of course, is this very focused process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I have a, a lot of uh, feelings about IEP meetings in general. But <laughs> at, at the end of the day, if, if we're able to begin moving teams along in mm-hmm. the right direction, it can be helpful for changing culture. So, yeah. so how do you do that? How do you do that as an advocate that mm-hmm. you're running into where, you know, and I can think of a parent I just talked to just recently mm-hmm. uh, in a general education setting uh, because of behaviors, I want to move to a, a behavioral you know, program, uh, which I think is a mistake for, mm-hmm. for the child, uh, as mm-hmm. it often may be. Um, what do you do? Yeah, I, and think, I know that's really putting you on the spot without enough yeah, information. No, give me some hypotheticals. You know, I think the first thing is is to look at. I try to understand why why is the team resistant. Um, I think understanding that first will help you then delineate what do we need to do. Um, you know, it is often a fear, right, of the unknown. So I think my my first my first line of defense is always to say, like, we're here to support you through this. Um, I'm not, you know, ignorant to think, and I obviously I didn't say this at IP meetings, but we know we have a real problem with how we train teachers in this country. And the teachers, special education, general education, regardless, do not leave higher education institutions with the knowledge they need to thoughtfully um, include students with, with right. support needs. So th- the first thing I like to, I like to figure out is what is that resistance? Now, sometimes that resistance is just old fashioned bigotry and believing that these students don't belong in my right. school. Um, right. And I, I say that because I have had a principal in this year tell me that. Um, and in those cases, when you're up against just real like hard, it's not going to, that's where I would look at like the law pieces. Um, But if we're at a piece of, I just think that the student can make more progress over here, that's where we look at um, bringing in both the research and helping helping the school understand that the way our students are going to engage with content or and show what they know is going to look different and that's okay. And that is typically the hang up that I see is, well, we want the student to do this, but they're not able to do it, whether that's writing, whether that's verbalizing, et cetera. And so it's about giving ways for them to see. And it's continuously, you know, as opposed to the once a year IEP meeting, continuously checking in with the team. Where is that success? Where are those 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 problem areas so that we don't allow those to create such a large, you know, a large issue that we come to the IEP a year later, never knowing that this was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the, the next piece to that is to look at help them understand the long-term goal because IEPs right are only for a year and often folks only see that as, as the year time and helping them understand that the skills we're going to gain in general education far surpass the academic gains, but also into those self-advocacy, the regulation, the, those communication mm-hmm. pieces. Um, and Any, then show, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
I was showing them examples. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of, of piece of, of works online that can show like, here's how it really works. Um, and I find those to be helpful. Um, mm -hmm. But it's about to, you know, pointing out those little wins, like, okay, look, we did great on this math test, or we, you know, had an improved day here. Um, because I think folks need to need to see that it's working and not that we should have to beg, borrow, steal or, or you know, cheerlead to to make this happen, because I do believe inclusive education is a human rights issue. <laughs> There's also the practical side of, of we're also working with other humans. So. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and you know, if you if you if you don't know of another way it's hard to imagine another solution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, you know, and you mentioned higher ed, and I would agree with you, I think, you know, higher ed, um, there's a lot of accountability in terms of things that, um, you know, would-be teachers are not getting exposed to. Uh, you know, people may go through higher ed and never even hear of things like restraint or seclusion mm -hmm. or a lot of the negative things that might happen. Uh, mm -hmm. And the first time they end up in a classroom where these things are, it becomes kind of, oh, well, this is what I'm being told is what we need to do in these situations. Mm -hmm. uh, and without that exposure, I think it's dangerous. Getting back to your idea of resources. So um, certainly, uh, you know, I think about, uh, you know, parents that I've worked with and uh, even my own experiences of, of handing out uh, books on IEP team meetings, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've handed out, you know, raw screens books or Monardella mm -hmm. hooks. Are, are there any resources particularly around an inclusive education that, you know, what is the the one must read or what is the one thing that you would recommend to somebody that you might be trying to help them with a lens change to kind of really see the light. Is there anything like that that comes to your mind? And if not, you know, it'll probably come yeah. to you later and you can always. Yeah. I would yeah. say the, the two biggest ones, and I'm going to give you two instead of one, even though you asked okay. for one um, is, is Scott Danforth's becoming a great inclusive educator. And that, that one I, I, I would pick, I used it in, in the class I taught. Uh, well, actually, Dr. Christy Ashby used it in, in her class that I happened to teach this year. That mm -hmm. um, it does talk about the transformation that educators must go through um, mm -hmm. and really talks about how we as non-disabled or folks who are non-disabled really you know, need, to, need to do this work. Um, and so that is is more of the like heart and mindset piece. And then I think Dr. Cheryl Jorgensen's more than just being in supporting students with complex support needs and in inclusive settings is really a great like practical guide. Although, you know, anything, Paul, Paul, any of Paula Kluth's work, mm -hmm. any of Dr. Julie Costin's work, any of Christy Ashby's work, uh, you know, I, the list could go, you know, on and on. I will say what I tend to tell folks is to not get, if you're going to give a book, to, to educators or to your team, I would recommend that you go through and tab one or two pages that you're like, this is really important because I would love to say that, you know, as a classroom teacher, I would have read the book, but I'm going to tell you, I probably wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have read the whole thing certainly. So having those one or two, one or two pieces, um, ready to go, I think is more digestible for folks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it's becoming a great inclusive educator. Is that the book from Scott? Yes. Okay, yeah. fantastic. I'll put a link to that also in the um, the chat here. Um, so let me just look here. Um, uh, well, I'm going to pull this up. I haven't read the whole thing yet. Uh, Tammy says, thank you so much. Autistic uh, slash ADHD adult with autistic ADHD kindergartner. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any IEP templates, lists of suitable goals? And kind of getting back to what we talked about a moment mm -hmm. ago. Uh, standard uh, partial acceptance letters or other inclusive templates and structures that we as parents can use 
or ask our advocates to use that ultimately help restructure or transform um, our school's IEPs? You know, so Dr. Cheryl Jorgensen has a, 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 a template um, exemplar IEP on her website. Um, there's, I think I would say this in, in terms of, it's hard, Greg, when we're trying to individualize things because, you know, I, I could have two students with the same diagnosis at the same school who need vastly different supports to be included, um, who have vastly different goals. So I would, you know, I think there are some resources on um, how to best write, you know, goals, but I would, I would from the start say this, um, start with your vision statement and in your vision statement, say something very specific about our vision for our child is to be fully included in general education. And 10 years from now, 15 years from now, here's what we expect. We expect college to be an option. We expect, um, you know, competitive work. And then we look at what are the child's skills? And then I see, uh, I see a, a friend of mine say that, you know, I think we should start with the typical expectations. Yes, we want to look at what are those standards? What is the end of year standard for a kindergartner for math, ELA, et cetera. And I tend to do math, reading, writing. Um, and we would look at where are we and where do we want to go from there? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we do that because if, if we then don't see things like, okay, we're gonna work on an analog clock for, for 12 years when no one knows how to read an analog clock anymore, but also it doesn't help <laughs> them in the, I quite frankly- You're making so me not. feel old, Sarah Jo. I know how to read a clock. Well, I can't, I'll say sometimes when I put on my, my fancy watch, it's a little bit of a struggle, guys. So but, but, but I don't take my change belt to the store, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so looking at like, if they're adding and subtracting, for example, or right. if they're doing, you know, a linear equation, that's a big piece of the year, then maybe that's what we target. Uh, it shouldn't be these just like, oh, what do I feel like these prerequisite skills? No, what are the typically, what are the, what are the expectations for students who are not identified as having a disability. And that's mm -hmm. where we, that's where we go from, even if it means modifying it greatly, mm -hmm. that's okay. Great. Great. So I put a couple of those resources in the, um, mm -hmm. uh, in the chat as well. And I did see there's a sample elementary IEP uh, that's in there. So uh, that might be a great, great resource for folks. Um, and uh, let's see, I've got uh, one more th uh, also from, uh, from Cheryl. Many don't even include goals regarding holding a pencil for a kindergartner. So right there, uh, they are perceived as incapable. Um, oh, uh, look at this. And we have uh, our friend, Dr. Mona Della Hook, um, oh. saying that Monica Os uh, Osgood wrote a good book uh, okay. for Perfectum on inclusive education. I'll see if I can find that Perfect. one as well. Um, so we're, we're just about reaching the end of our time here together. Uh, but this has really been um, really fantastic. And, and I love... Um, you know, the passion you bring to this. And, you know, again, um, with so many things, we, we wish we could change the world overnight and it's not mm -hmm. always possible, but the more self-advocates and, you know, parents and others that are out there uh, advocating for these kinds of changes, advocating for inclusion, advocating for high expectations, advocating for kind of social models of, of uh, supporting people. Oh, and Mona put that link in the chat for us. 
all, all the better, the, the more we have this kind of work. So I, I really appreciate your, your passion and what you're doing here and, and want to thank you uh, for uh, being with us today and, and sharing what you're, you're doing. Uh, so how else can people learn about your work and, and what you have planned in the future? I saw you posted recently something about like, I'm, I'm done with all these things right now. And, you know, but I'm sure you've got a lot on your plate. So what, what's going coming up with you? So I, yeah. So thank you so much. Um, so I just finished my second year in the doctoral program and I have officially done with coursework forever, um, which is kind of a scary thing when I was like, oh my gosh, I've been in school for 20 years. Um, so now I, I go into my qualifying exams and ultimately my dissertation, um, which will take, you know, the, the majority of, of my time. I do a little bit of, you know, consulting with school districts, uh, consulting with families. Um, I'm, I'm, pretty active on Facebook. That's the best place to get a hold of me. Um, if you need, you know, support, yes, uh, Cheryl said until, until postdoc. And then, yes. And then we can only think about two more years, <laughs> two more years to get the, uh, about two more years to get this PhD. And then um, I continue to research. Um, um, so right. we'll be looking, we'll be looking for yeah. lots of, lots more great things coming from you. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, do, do you also support, um, you mentioned um, kind of, doing IEP meetings, do you support people in that capacity as well? And, I, and to that extent, I mean, given the world that we live in, are you able to support people outside of your community? Yeah, so I've actually, um, yes, so I'll say this. I, yeah, I've supported, I've, I keep pretty vigorous data on support, but I've supported over a thousand students to move from um, segregated settings to inclusive ones through an IEP process. Um, in all 50 states now, because of where I am in my doctoral program, um, I'm not taking on new new advocacy folks at this time, but I am happy to look over IEPs um, and help guide you and connect you with uh, an advocate in your area um, and, and to be a resource um, if things go, go, go awry. Um, Fantastic. Um, Sergio, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate you um, joining us for this conversation. Um, you know, I, I always greatly enjoy these conversations myself, and I know we've got a lot of people that have been very actively uh, participating today. I encourage people that have been watching this, um, you know, share these share these with, with others. I mean, share these. If you're an educator, share it with other educators or administrators. If you're a, a parent, share them with other parents or even your, your um, you know, teachers and staff. Uh, the more we can kind of spread the word, um, the more we're going to bring about and help to bring about change. So, uh, Sergio, I will let you go. I've got a quick announcement here for folks, but uh, thank you so much. Did you have any final words before uh, yeah. we let you sign off? Yeah, I will just say, you know, I, I'm a believer that school placement will determine the quality of life. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Guy, for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, well, I hope you all enjoyed that today. Uh, I know I did. And I think, um, uh, you know, another fantastic uh, presentation. I think we're really fortunate to have so many great guests that come on and, and share their knowledge and their experiences and really hopefully help to, to lead to some positive change. I do want to mention we've got another event coming up in two weeks. Uh, and actually in the same vein here, we're going to be talking more about inclusion. Uh, we're doing an interview with uh, Kristen Weens, who is an inclusion coach uh, from British Columbia, Canada. And uh, I'll just tell you that if you think you recognize that name, you might. Uh, Kristen does a lot of amazing illustrations that you've probably seen on social media. Uh, I, I don't have one to show you right now, but uh, I'll have some next time. 
and uh, does some amazing work of helping to get the messages out of things that we can do to better support kids. So really looking forward to that coming up um, again here um, in our next session. And I uh, want to thank everybody for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. Take care.